You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Um, I told you earlier we're going to deviate a little bit from the Gospel of John. We're still going to tie in our sermon today to what we've been learning in John, but <clears throat> we're specifically going to be in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we'll bounce between chapter 7, 8, and 9 with our main text coming from chapter 9. This is our D group passage that we had over this past month, so we've been studying it together, um, but because we don't have C groups this month, not coming together and discussing it more in depth, I wanted to make sure that uh, we were able to come away from this passage with some clarity, and so I thought it best to teach from this passage since we don't have C groups uh, this month. So uh, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9. Those notes are now loaded, so you have access to those if you want. And we'll look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who, ha- who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The past two weeks, we looked at John chapter 14. We looked at uh, cures for a troubled heart, cures for a fearful heart. We, we saw that maturing faith in Jesus is the basis for preventing one's heart from being troubled. With our anxieties particularly dissipating as we recognize more clearly our secure future and our present hope. So as Jesus is finalizing his, his, his last teachings with his disciples, he tells them not to have troubled hearts because he's leaving. There's been discussion about betrayal from Judas, uh, denial by Peter, <clears throat> just a lot of uncertainty surrounding Jesus and his followers right now. And he, he challenges them not to be troubled. Um, and he talks about the intimacy that they can enjoy with him through their... their um, their, uh, their relationship with him, right? So he talks about expecting anxious moments, but refusing to settle, to instead believe in that intimate faith that they have in him, to, to believe that faith in him is the solution for their troubled hearts. And, and then he talks about the future that is certain for them, knowing that, that future that he's coming back, he's preparing a place for them. So he gives them some security to reflect upon with their future. And then he talks about their purpose in, in staying put, in, in being left behind, he talks about them doing greater works than he's done. Um, and we talked about what that meant. And so I talked to you two weeks ago about, about using our, our time to really reflect and determine, are there any personal anxieties that you're struggling with? And really going to Scripture to see 
um, what Scripture has to say about those anxieties and, and how Scripture has answers for those anxieties, all right? And then we talked about that fearful heart, that maturing love for Jesus is the basis for growing in our obedience to him, allowing our fears to be turned into a mindset of peace as we enjoy deepening intimacy with him with the help of the Holy Spirit. So last week we talked about how we, we grow in our obedience to Jesus and, and we find deeper assurance in our salvation as that obedience grows. We saw the role that the Holy Spirit plays in that, that the Holy Spirit draws to remembrance things that we have forgotten. It, it gives clarity to things that we don't fully understand. Um, and so we grow in our faith through this helper that Jesus promises to give to us. And, and he talks about this peace that he extends to us at the end of John chapter 14. And we'll come back to the very end of John chapter 14 as we close out our discussion on Isaiah chapter 9 today. Our summary sentence today from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 is that Christmas reminds us that the gloom of this life can be vanquished if we are willing to connect that our gloom and darkness is the byproduct of sin and judgment and that belief in Jesus as the light is our only source of salvation. Christmas reminds us that the gloom of this life can be vanquished if we are willing to connect that our gloom and darkness is the byproduct of sin and judgment and that belief in Jesus as the light is our only source of salvation. For our kids, Christmas reminds us that Jesus came to save us from our sin. What we see in this passage here in Isaiah chapter 9 is a promise or a assurance that one can move from a state of gloom ultimately into a state of glory. The passage begins talking about those who were, who were uh, trapped in a state of gloom and how in latter times now, a new glorious way has been paved for them. We're going to see today that, that gloom and darkness is connected to sin and judgment and discipline from God, and that we can move out of that state into a state of light by seeing Jesus as our only source of salvation. As you're writing down, um, Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9 are chapters that we're going to look at today. And kind of the background, the context for, for these three chapters is, is really found in 2 Kings chapter 16. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 16, we see the historical narrative for some things that are playing out here. And, and at this point in Israel's history, you've got the kingdom split with Judah and Israel. The tribes are split into those, those two groupings. And so you've got separate kings and, and separate things happening in their history during this time. Uh, in this setting right here, King Ahaz is the king of Judah, and, and he's a wicked king. Um, he's described in 2 Kings chapter 16 as one who has even sacrificed his child to a false god. Um, we know that he has set up this, this, this heinous idolatry within uh, the, the nation of Judah, and, and the, the people are, are sacrificing their children as acts of worship to these demonic gods, right? Like it's a dark point in Israel's history, and King Ahaz is one who is leading them into this deeper darkness. Um, it's in this setting where Syria and Israel, the other portion of, of the, the tribes, has, has made an alliance to attack Judah, right? And they're, they're coming for Judah, 
And so there's fear that kind of sets in for King Ahaz as to to what to do with this. And we see in Isaiah chapter 7, there's encouragement from God through the prophet to to basically hold tight, to stand firm, to keep the faith, to, to trust that God is going to deliver. We see in 2 Kings chapter 16 where Ahaz's fear leads him to make an alliance with Assyria, basically crying out to Assyria for help. And he does so by actually raiding the temple and sending the things of God to Assyria as kind of a tribute or as a payment to incite their help. The passage says that Assyria listens to them and responds. And and while they're visiting with the Assyrian people, uh, Ahaz and his people take note of some of the ways that they're worshiping and even bring some of that back and try to replicate it in Israel. It's a dark point in Israel's history. Ahaz responsible for leading them into some of that deeper darkness. So it's in that context where Judah, who's got the promise that David's line is supposed to be leading them and that David's line will never be taken away and that ultimately one is to come to rule forever from that line. It's in that context where we see a human king failing massively, right? Instead of relying upon those promises, instead of trusting in those promises, he, he allows the trembling, troubling heart to cause him to, to latch his security onto the things of this world is ultimately what happens in this passage right? And he's going to bear the consequences of that. But it's in this context where we have a human king failing that God chooses to give us this Old Testament prophecy about this future king to come who will never fail, right? So we get this prophecy of Jesus in the midst of all this turmoil, and it won't happen for hundreds of years after this, but it's in the context of this human failure by Judah's king that God chooses to remind his people, it won't always be this way. You won't always be subjected to a failing human king who leads you into deeper darkness. There's one who is coming, this Emmanuel, this God with us. He's coming and he will set up a totally different type of government, a totally different type of kingdom that will, that will move us away from darkness, move us away from this gloom into glorious light for all eternity. Okay, so that's kind of the the background, the setting. You've got turmoil in Israel, turmoil in Judah. They're battling with each other. Alliances are being formed. There's a testing point. Who will we trust as Judah? Will we trust ourselves? Will we trust other kingdoms around us? Or will we trust God? And they fail. They fail to trust God. They instead choose to trust the things of this world, and it leads them into darkness. All right, so that's the context for, for what we see here in Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9. So let's jump right in with some some points for us to take away from this passage, okay? Number one, we can experience glory rather than gloom by repenting of our sins. Experience glory rather than gloom by repenting of your sins. For our kids, we need to repent from our sin. I love this word gloom here because I think it's, it's a word that really summarizes everything that you're reading about what's happening to Judah, right? Like it's a word that we don't use probably very often. If we do use it, we attach the, the why to it and talk about somebody looking gloomy maybe. But that word gloom really to me encompasses what you're seeing as a result of their, their disobedience and their lack of faith, right? Like this distress and anguish and darkness 
and what the text even describes as deeper darkness. Man, if we're going to summarize all that, I feel like that word gloom really, really captures what's happening in the state of this nation here. They're, they're, they're thrust into this, this setting of gloom. But what we find is that by repenting of our sins, we can move into this new state of glory that's talked about. It's in the former times that this state of gloom and anguish exists. But there in verse 1 at the second half of verse 1, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Well, how did they get into this point? How did they get to this state? Number one, gloom comes as a result of sin and judgment. Gloom comes as a result of sin and judgment. They had plenty of reasons to hope in the Lord and they spurned those opportunities. Threats are being made and they choose to yield to the threats versus the promises that have already been given to them by God. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. These people have troubled hearts, right? It's exactly what we've talked about in John chapter 14. Their hearts are greatly troubled. Why? Because their circumstances are completely undesirable here at this point. Their enemies are mounting an attack against them, right? Their hearts are troubled. They are shaking in their boots as to what is going to happen here. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shearjashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. I like how how God describes these people here, right? Like he views them already as defeated nations, right? Like, hey, don't fear these smoldering stumps of firebrands because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it, right? So God says, don't be scared of these people, Right? Like they're already defeated, basically. They're already, they're already burned up. They're already stumps. Don't fear these people. Don't fear their threats. What's the threat? They, they, they've caught wind of the fact that these two are uniting together to come to them to overthrow their king and to establish a new king that'll basically do things that they want him to do. And God says, don't worry about this. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God's like, stand firm right here. Like, I'm promising you this is not going to happen. You do not have to worry about this. Man, wouldn't it be great if we got words from the Lord like that about our circumstances when we're, when we're doubting and we don't know how to trust? Right? Like they get a direct revelation from God that says, this will not come to pass. This will not come to fruition. These people will not stand. Right? Believe me. And then, verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, 
ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you are you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. I think some confusion set in here in our studies because it sounds like Ahaz is, is doing the right thing here, right? He's like, well, I'm not going to test God. I'm not going to ask a sign here, which would have been right and okay if he said, hey, what you just told me is enough for me, right? Like, I'm going to believe you. But what's he really doing here? He's saying, I don't want to sign because I don't want to do it your way. I don't want to believe in you. I, I want to trust Assyria, right? I want to trust this other nation. That's where my security is right now. I want to trust them. It's similar to what we talked about years ago when we were with Jonah. Remember, Jonah said, I, I didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because I knew you were going to save these people, right? Like I knew that's what was going to happen. It's why I didn't even want to come here. We're thinking like, why would a missionary not want to go to a place and see people saved? Because Jonah hated the Ninevites. It's why he runs, not because he doesn't want to go, but because he doesn't want to see them get saved. And when, they, when he finally goes, after he gets puked up from the, the fish, he gets there, he preaches like maybe the worst presentation of the gospel ever, and they still get saved, right? And then he says, man, I knew you were going to do this. That's what Ahaz is saying here. He's like, I don't want to sign, because all you'll do is prove to me who you are, and I'm not interested in following you, right? I, I want to go with Assyria over here. They had ample opportunity to trust, and they spurned it. They, they neglected the promises. They chose to listen to the threats. They rejected God's word and looked to other sources for guidance and hope. Look at chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. How do they put themselves in this situation? They stop listening to God's word. They stop trusting it. And they start looking to other sources for security. They look to other sources for wisdom. They look to other sources for guidance. They look to other sources for protection. And those things result in exactly what God promised they would. They result in failing Israel. They fail Judah, right? It leaves them in a state of being hungry, distressed, enraged, full of anguish and darkness and gloom, and they are being thrust into even thicker darkness 
by the end of chapter 8. They've rejected his word. They've looked to other sources for guidance and hope. They sink into deeper darkness where there is no dawn, no light of escape. But number two, glory comes as a result of repentance and obedience. So the people are prophesied to be in this state of gloom and darkness here at the end of chapter 8. And that's where in chapter 9, verse 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. I hope you read that in your D group preparation and and connected it with what we've been studying in John with Jesus being that light, right? We've, we've talked numerous times. We've seen in numerous passages in the gospel of John where Jesus is this light. We don't have to remain in a state of gloom because a great light has shone. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit who shines into our hearts and gives us that ability to see Jesus as that dawning light. John chapter one, we won't take the time to read it, but that entire passage is one worth referencing again, Jesus being that light. But in Matthew chapter four, verse 12, this is a passage where we see a direct correlation with what's happened in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament. Now, we talked in our D group about how, how do we know when some of these obscure passages are being fulfilled in the New Testament? And, and sometimes we don't know. We absolutely know it when the New Testament author helps us out and tells us, right? It's, it's called a divine hermeneutic. Um, it, it's, it's when a study note becomes a valid, uh, guaranteed, authoritative note on, on a passage, right? When a, when a New Testament writer says, hey, you remember that passage in the Old Testament? This is what it was talking about, right? Like, that's different than looking at your study notes and some human author saying, hey, I think this passage is talking about this passage. It may be, but he's not a divine author, right? Matthew writing his gospel says, hey, this, this, this is happening because Isaiah said it would happen. So in Matthew chapter four, verse 12 Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, talking about John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus intentionally shines light into darkness to bring about salvation, and he does it particularly in this region, this region of the promised land. He says, I'm coming here to fulfill this prophecy that was given way back in the Old Testament in Isaiah. He intentionally goes to that area with purpose to fulfill this prophecy. And it talks about this light dawning upon the scene. 
Whereas we just read in chapter 8 of Isaiah where there was no dawn, right? There was no light shining. They were being thrust into deeper darkness. Jesus shows up and shines light into that darkness, right? And, 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 and it's, it's an appeal to these people who are caught up in this deep darkness. It's the people in the deep darkness that are being rescued and saved by Jesus. It lets us know that prior sins and prior judgments that we may have experienced, that we can still be salvaged for his purposes, that light still shines into the deepest, darkest places and saves heinous sinners today, right? They can be rescued by this great light. Talks about former and latter times in this passage and, and can be vague uh, as to where to identify this. Maybe 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29 is one that's being referenced where, um, where Naphtali is, is even experiencing oppression from Assyria, a dark time for that area for them. But we see this light coming to this dark place and Jesus intentionally going to this area called the Galilee of the nations or the Galilee of the Gentiles. Light shines in these darkest places and brings about change. The appeal that Jesus gives to us is to repent to be a part of this light. Repent if you want to be a part of the light. They were walking in darkness. They were dwelling in deep darkness, but that can all be changed now due to this light. And what's unique about this area, it's like, why this area? Well, I think it's strategic on Jesus's part to go to this area for the gospel first, because what you have is kind of a porous border in the sense that this is, this is an area where uh, other nations would often attack. This is where Gentile nations were oftentimes kind of blurring the lines with Israel. So it was a porous border in the sense that you had other people kind of coming into their area. So it was a place that was kind of looked at as, as a negative place by the Jewish people. Remember, we even remember uh, there was a reference about, can anything good come out of Galilee in regards to Jesus? Because that was kind of an off-limits place. Like nobody really valued that area because it was so mixed with these other nations. Well, I think that's intentional upon Jesus's part, right? Because he's like, hey, we're shining light, not just to Israel, but to the nations, right? To the Gentiles. It's strategic on his part. It goes all the way back to Genesis seventeen fifteen, where Jesus or God promises Abram, that he will be the father, not just of one nation, but a father of many nations, right? That Abrahamic covenant, that Abrahamic promise is that many nations get to reap the benefits of the promise made to Abram, right? And that's the Gentiles coming to faith through the gospel. And we see that pictured even in the region that Jesus goes to. We saw this in John chapter 10, verse 16, when that, that discussion about Jesus being the shepherd, what did he say? I have sheep that are not part of this fold, that have to come too, right? They're gonna listen to my voice. They're not part of Israel, but they will be part of Israel because they are going to listen to my voice. They're, they're currently outside the fold. They're in these other nations, but they are too gonna come and be a part of what's happening. We can experience glory rather than gloom by repenting of our sins, right? You may be in a state today where, where you would describe yourself as being in a state of gloom, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe there's areas of darkness in your life, anguish, distress, trouble, and I can almost guarantee you that the way out of that, the way out of that is by trusting in God's word. And it sounds too simple, right? We're so oftentimes thinking, give me something else over here to go with that. It's exactly what Ahaz was saying, right? Like his promises are nice, but can we talk to some people that can talk to dead people, right? Like where are the necromancers at? Where, where are the wizards at? Where, where, where can we get some additional help here, right? 
all the while God's saying, I made some promises to you, like some rock solid promises for you to believe, Ahaz. You don't have to be, you don't have to be shaken. You don't have to be troubled, right? You can believe these promises. This is not going to happen to you. Ahaz says, no, I want want something else to get me out of this. And what does that do? It drives him into deeper darkness, deeper darkness, looking for solutions outside of God's word. Experience glory rather than gloom by repenting of your sins. Lack of trust is a sin, right? So we repent of that. We repent of that and we move from that gloom and that darkness. And I don't care how dark it is or how gloomy it is, right? Because they were thrust into deeper, thicker darkness. But chapter nine, verse one, it doesn't have to stay that way, right? It doesn't have to stay that way. Former times don't have to stay that way. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish because glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan of the nations, because this great light has come and has shone in the midst of them, right? Number two, embrace joy rather than darkness by following the light. We embrace joy rather than darkness by following the light. For our kids, we need to obey Jesus as the light of the world, right? He says, you've multiplied the nation, you went to the Galilee of the nations to shine your light. So we saw how Jews and Gentiles alike. But then in verse 3, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. John chapter 3 verse 19 tells us what we're supposed to do with this light that has come. It identifies our future destiny. It says in verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil, right? Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. I love the darkness. Like I love being where I'm at. I don't want the light. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. How do we experience this joy? How do we experience this moving from gloom to glory? Well, it comes from repenting of our sins, but repentance is twofold. Right? It's not just turning from something, it's turning to something, and we see us turning to the light and now following the light. That's how we experience this joy. And look at how the joy is described. This, this joy that comes from salvation and submitting ourselves to Jesus as a wonderful counselor, as a mighty God, as a prince of peace. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Right? Two ways that we see here. Number one, By coming to the light, we experience plenty. We experience plenty. This joy at the harvest is the joy experienced when you you have a great harvest, a plentiful harvest where your needs are being met, right? Where you're being taken care of. Now, does that mean materialistically? No, no. Are are we promised or guaranteed that, that by coming into the light that we're gonna experience plenty of job opportunities or plenty of houses or plenty of clothing or, or plenty of these things. Absolutely not, right? 
We have, we have to reprogram our minds to even understand how it is that God provides for us. But, but we're assured, we're assured that he takes care of us, that he never leaves us, that he never forsakes us, that we don't have to trust in money, right, that we can trust in him. By coming to the light, we experience this plenty, this, this joy of the harvest. But secondly, we also experience victory, this, this joy or gladness that comes from the spoil. Our needs are taken care of and our enemies are conquered with Jesus as our light. That Holy Spirit working inside of us that, that brings us to, to a greater state of obedience that we talked about in John chapter 14, right? Our, our, our enemies of sin and temptation being conquered in our life. Things that once dominated us, things that are now being set aside as our desires are being changed, right? This victory, this joy or gladness that comes from the spoil. And this is where we would be tempted to say, yeah, but you don't know, you don't know me, you don't know my darkness, you don't know my gloom. Right? And that's where I think the passage draws our attention to this previous situation, this day of Midian. Because right? it talks about this yoke of his burden, staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. That, that, that thing, that enemy has been defeated. We're now dividing the spoil. You've broken it as the day of Midian. Well, what's the day of Midian? Well, that narrative context takes you back to Judges chapter 7. This is the passage where Gideon is going up against Midian, right? And so the Midianites are, are oppressing Israel. And basically they come in and take all Israel's stuff whenever they want it, and Israel just has to take it, right? And, and, and Israel's kind of tired of it, right? And so God raises up Gideon, who, according to Gideon, is, is an unlikely source for deliverance, right? But this enemy, this, this, this enemy is coming, and, and God starts to create this army, and eventually Gideon kind of looks around and says, pretty good army, right? Like a pretty good amount of soldiers here. We, we should be okay. And God's like, now nah, let's get rid of some of these people. We got too many here, right? So tell anybody who doesn't want to be here, go home, right? And so everybody's like, well, I don't want to be here. I don't want to get killed potentially in war, so I'm going to go home. And so they start to, they start to lose some. And then they, then they get onto the water and they're drinking water. And based on how they drink, it determines who gets to stay and who gets to go home, right? And by the time it's all said, no, there's 300 of them left, and it's with those 300 that God delivers Midian into the hands of Gideon, right? What's the purpose of that? Well, it shows us that God gave the victory there, right? It's a stunning victory. It's a situation where they had no business winning that victory, but it shows us the mighty God that we serve, the type of victory that he can accomplish. So even when, when, the, when the odds are stacked against us, even when we would say, I mean, you don't understand this situation, that's when God works his best victory, Right? That's when he shows his might. He breaks these enemies down. The burden of the enemies are broken. John Piper talks about the fact that we read this and it's like, yeah, but we still have enemies and they still seem to gain victory over us at times, right? Because in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, which then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's like, how does this work? Because there's still famine, there's still persecution, there's still death. And we just talked about there being plenty, right? That our needs are taken care of. So how does this work? If, if these things are still happening, Christians are still dying around the world, they're still being persecuted for their faith. Some are still dying of starvation today. Some are naked and don't have clothing. Some are experiencing danger in the sword. Is God still faithful? Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where do we see the victory? The victory is seen not in Jesus removing famine or removing nakedness or removing danger or persecution. It's seen in the fact that none of those things can separate us from him that we can still experience all of those things, but he uses those things to bring us closer to him. Ultimately, we are united with him even through that death. So where's the victory at? The victory is in the fact that we don't lose Jesus in the midst of all of those troubles, right? In all those troubles, we still get to come to Jesus. We are not separated from his love. There's a completeness of victory to this too. That in in, in Victory over these enemies. The completeness of victory is seen in this last phrase in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Not only are our enemies defeated, but they become useful to his plan. They become fuel for his fire. They're useful now. John Piper says, or calls it, super defeated. Not only are they defeated, they are super defeated in the sense that they become useful in their defeat, right? One thing that came to my mind, probably a really poor illustration, I was thinking this morning, Jesus is probably going to like rebuke me when I get to heaven for how shallow my illustrations are sometimes and how I try to connect these glorious truths to like memorable ways for us. But as I was reading this, I immediately thought of um, a movie that Lauren and I watched recently, Um, Back to the Future, all right? In Back to the Future, like one, two, and three, Biff Tannen is like the antagonist, and all of his ancestors are the antagonists. You can go back to the wild, wild west. You can go back to the 50s. There's always a Biff Tannen. You can go well into the future, which we've already passed that year in Back to the Future 2, what the future looked like. There's always a Biff Tannen antagonist right? He's the bully in the movie. But in that very first one, he's the bully back in the 50s. He's still a bully um, in in the present day, right? In that movie, though, the the way things changed, it allowed his dad to kind of become this hero that he had never been before. And when you get to the end of the movie, Biff Tannen, who was the bully, is now outside waxing their family's cars, right? Like, he, he went from being the bully that demanded them serve him, now he's serving their family. So that's the image that I saw as I was studying this. It's like, hey, not only is the enemy defeated, not only is that bully defeated, he's now useful, right? Like he's now doing something as part of God's plan. And that's what happens here. He says, 
we're going to use them for fire. We're going to use them for fuel for our fire. So not only are they defeated, they're useful in that defeat. That shows God's sovereignty over the whole process. We can embrace joy rather than darkness by following the light. Number three, enjoy peace rather than distress by trusting Jesus alone. Enjoy peace rather than distress by trusting Jesus alone. So you get this picture here in Isaiah chapter nine where the enemies are defeated, this oppressor is removed, which is ultimately what they're concerned about, right? Syria and Israel are trying to come in and oppress us. So let's turn our attention to this other nation that's known for oppression and give our allegiance to them, which makes zero sense, right? But what's happening here in Isaiah chapter nine is there's, there's prophecy that the oppression is gonna be removed completely, right? Like this oppressing government is gonna be overthrown, and used for fire. Well, what does that leave now in that void? Who takes over? Verse six, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. For our kids need to trust Jesus to enjoy this peace. Jesus is to be seen as the replacement ruler. The liberation that we experience in salvation is so a new ruler can take the throne. This is where too often times, particularly in our culture, it seems people will claim Jesus, claim salvation, claim that their sins have been forgiven, but they don't replace the ruler with Jesus in their life. Right? Like they, they, they just keep functioning the way they've always been functioning, living according to their sin, giving themselves over to the things of this world. But in some ways, they try to claim that they've experienced victory. But there's no desire on their part to put Jesus on the throne. But they don't want him as the replacement ruler. They just don't want the consequences that come from living life the way that they want to, right? Like, I've been spared from hell. I've been forgiven of my sins. I'm not going to experience God's judgment. And when I'm in real crisis situations, I can post on Facebook that I'm praying and I want other people to pray that God will work and move in this situation. But, but he's, but he's not, not somebody you're following, right? Like, like you're, not, you're not following the light. You're running from the light. You're constantly hiding from the light. You're, you're going into deeper darkness, and yet you're trying to claim that there's victory and that you, that, that you can call upon Jesus. Jesus is the one who takes over this governing role in our life. The oppressor's removed, sin gets dealt with, and now Jesus takes over. And number two, he's a superior ruler. He's a superior ruler, and we see this in the titles that are given to them. He's a superior ruler. He's first off a wonderful counselor, which is a nod to his wisdom. He tells us the best things to do. Not just anything to do, but the best things to do. And I think in the context of what we're seeing in the background, his counsel and wisdom is better than Ahaz. He has better plans than Ahaz. Isaiah chapter 28 Verse 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel, excellent in wisdom. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says that all things work according to his counsel. Right? Everything in, in, in our life is being filtered through his counsel. So if it comes to us, it has come through his counsel, his great wisdom. Romans chapter 11 verse 33 
without a passage like this, you, you might be wondering, is that a good thing? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Man, nobody comes into the counsel of the Lord and betters his counsel. Right? He doesn't need, need to talk to anybody else, doesn't need any payment from anybody. He doesn't improve upon his counsel. It's already superior. Right? So we are replacing everything that we've ever lived for in life as our oppressing ruler with a better counselor who tells us the best things to do with our life. And that counsel is available to us. Psalm chapter 32. He will provide counsel to us individually. Psalm chapter 32, verse eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Psalm chapter 73, verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. That counsel is available to us. That wisdom is available to us. Not just wisdom and counsel about scripture, but how to take scripture and apply it specifically to our life. Right, so, so one commentator said, the counsel that's available to us will help us understand the depth and riches of the gospel, but it'll also give us wisdom and guidance in how to love our wife until we die. Right? Like it'll, it'll, it'll satisfy this, this deep curiosity that we have about him and his word. Like he'll give us the depth of knowledge that comes from that Holy Spirit's powering us. But it also takes it and translates it into daily life. Like, like how do I take this and use it in the daily decisions that I make, that counsel is available to us. Number two, he's a mighty God, which is a nod to his strength. And he has better strength than Syria and Israel. But in that strength, not only does he, so in his wisdom, he tells us the best things to do. And then in his strength, he provides the energy for us to do the best things. Right? So Philippians 2.13, I talked, I taught on this years ago. I mean, it's been a decade since we ta- I taught through Philippians. But in Philippians chapter 2, we talked about that working out your salvation. And we talked about it's in, it's in you and through you that God does it. And we talked about him being the great energizer, right? Like, like he provides the battery power like an energizer bunny that keeps going and going and going. God is the, the battery power for us doing the things that he calls us to do in obedience to him. Right, so we're called to be obedient to him. Well, that's hard because we're sinful and we have fleshly tendencies to want to do things the other way. So how do we obey him? Well, we obey him because the Holy Spirit is in us and he's providing the great, mighty strength and power for us to be obedient to him so that he gets the glory for it. He's God, John 1, 1, Colossians 2, 9, Hebrews 1, 2 through 3, passages we've looked at to see that deity piece. But he's also man, right? He's a child that's been given to us, a child who's been born. It reminds us of what we saw in Hebrews, how his humanity is so important because it shows that he understands us. It shows that he can be that sympathetic priest. Next, he's an everlasting father. He's caring. And he offers better protection than Assyria. He's an everlasting father. Which is weird to think because we think of God the Father, We don't necessarily think of Jesus as our father, 
But Isaiah 53, 10 talks about us being his offspring. John 14, 18 that we saw just a couple weeks ago talks about him coming to us so we aren't left as orphans, right? And then all through John, particularly chapter 14, we've seen that close unity between God the Father and God the Son. So it's, it's right for us to see him even as a father in our life. There's another illustration for you. Um, because this, this really came to my mind. In, in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7. Have you ever been a part of a, a meeting or a conversation where there's conflict that you're trying to resolve, and there's somebody that's supposed to be on your side, and they say something, and you're just like, what are you doing? Like, you just made it worse. And maybe not intentionally, but you just blew it. Like, you just made a comment it just made the whole situation worse. I had a situation just recently with a teacher where I was trying to help them navigate through some tension with a parent. I, we, we have virtually cleaned up the whole thing, right? Like we are done. And then another email is sent from the teacher to the parent. And I'm just like, what are you doing? And, and, and he thought he was just adding to the resolution. But the comment that was made had all the potential to stir everything back up again. And I was just like, what are you doing? Like you're making this situation worse. I say that to say, in, in, back in 2000 to 2004, I'm up at, at Liberty, and um, I, I became like a huge Red Sox fan for baseball, right? Like I never wavered from my Braves allegiance, but there was something weird during that time frame where if you were a Braves fan, you were also a Red Sox fan and vice versa. Like it was just common to see somebody be both. And when I was at Liberty, I told you before, like I really wanted to be known as a Southern boy. Like I'm not, I'm not from the North. And so I embraced the Red Sox nation because I, I wanted to be anti-Yankees, right? And so there was this big conflict, tension between the Yankees and the Red Sox, right? So I was a big Red Sox fan because I didn't want the Yankees to win the World Series. And for, for years, they were, they were dominant, and, they, and the Red Sox couldn't beat them, right? They just couldn't beat them. And the Red Sox' best pitcher at the time was Pedro Martinez, right? Great pitcher. He couldn't figure out how to beat the Yankees, right? And there was one time in the playoffs where— He's doing this uh, post-game interview, right? And he's making all these excuses. And we did this, we did this, we did this, we did this. And then he says, you know, we played hard, but you can just call the Yankees my daddy, is what he said. What does he mean by that? He's saying, like, the Yankees own me. Like, like I can't beat them. They are dominant. Like, like they're my dad, basically, right? Like, like I'm just giving myself to them. Like, I, I don't know how to beat them. You know what happened the next time he took the mound? Like, it, it was unbelievable. Like, everybody must have seen the press conference because he comes up to the mound to pitch, and the entire Yankee Stadium is just screaming, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? And you're just like, I mean, you just made the whole thing worse, right? Like, you just said what everybody knows, and that's that you can't beat the Yankees, right? And so it's just, who's your daddy? You go back to 2 Kings chapter 16, all right? Well, you're like, what? what? Ahaz reaches out to Assyria, and he says, you know what? He says, I'm your son, right? You're my dad, right? Like, you're who I need to come to the rescue for me, right? Because I can't beat you. I can't beat these people. I need you to come be my dad, right? But we don't have to turn to the world and subject ourselves to the things of the world and have the world come and rescue us from anything, Right? He's our everlasting dad. He's our everlasting father, not in an oppressive way. Right? Because Assyria is not going to be a good father to Israel. They're just not. 
The Yankees weren't a good dad to the Red Sox, and, and the Assyrian Empire is not a good dad to, to Judah, right? But they turn to them and say, you know what? We can't beat you, so let's just join you, right? Like, come, come rescue us. Come help us. But what we see in this passage is that he is an everlasting father who demonstrates great care for us. His protection is better than Assyria. And some of us have, 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 have looked back on our dad situations, and we don't have the best dad situations, right? And he is the answer to all of our bad dad situations, right? He is the perfect, caring father who cares for us better than anything we could possibly imagine. He's the Prince of Peace. He brings this calming presence to us, a better relief because it is not temporary. The passage talks about his unending government, his unending kingdom. Back in Isaiah chapter 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We won't have time to look at this, um, but in Isaiah 53, 5, Romans 5, 1, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, all those passages talk about how he makes peace possible for us through his death that we can have peace with God. We saw in John chapter 14, verse 27, where he talks to his disciples and says, I'm giving you peace, not like the world's peace, right? Peace that only comes when there is no trouble. I'm giving you peace that you can enjoy and have even when you're in the midst of trouble, right? Because those troubles don't separate you from my love. Philippians 4, 7 is another passage that talks about it. But what I want to close with is this last part of chapter 7, or verse 7. The assurance that all this will come to pass, like it's been said, is the zeal of the Lord, right? It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Everything that you've just read about, all these promises, all this hope and encouragement that's being extended to you, this whole idea that, that I will rescue from gloom and darkness if you'll repent of your sins, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you'll repent of your sins, if you'll, if you'll follow the light, if you'll come out of the darkness and into the light and follow it, then I'll rescue you from the, from the anguish and the distress and the gloom and the deeper darkness. And we have assurance that he will do this because of the zeal of the Lord. Well, what's the Lord zealous about? That's where it takes us back to John chapter 14. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Remember I told you last week that that Jesus talks about how the rule of the world is coming for him. And rather than retreat or rather than just wait, he says, let's go from here and let's go meet him, right? Let's go meet him and let's go deal with this. I'm bringing you peace. I'm bringing you peace. I'm not gonna run from this. I'm gonna hide from this. I'm gonna go meet Judas in the garden. I'm gonna go meet the arresting army in the garden, right? I'm gonna go deal with this because I love my father, right? All this is contingent on Jesus continuing to love his father, and that's never changing, right? The zeal of the Lord will do this, and he is zealous about his father. He is zealous about the world knowing that he loves the father. He's not backing down from this. 
He came, he gave up of himself, he emptied himself, came to this world at Christmas so that he could live a perfect life, so that he could die in our place, so that he could rescue us from gloom and darkness. He is the light that shone. We can come out of the darkness and into the light. We can be rescued from it. We can experience joy instead of distress. We can enjoy peace by trusting him. From an application standpoint, when you take some time to reflect on when you have seen Jesus provide wisdom, strength, care, and a calming presence in your life in the past, and praise him and thank him once again for it. If you're a Christian, you've experienced some level of wisdom, strength, care, and and a calming presence, that peaceful presence in your life at points in your past. Praise him and thank him once again for it. It will help remind you that he will keep doing that in the future. Number two, read back through John this week, specifically the passages that talk about Jesus being light and celebrate the plenty and victory he has given to you through his first coming. The joy of the harvest, the the gladness that comes from dividing the spoil. Spend some time reflecting upon that. Then our family worship questions are real similar. Reflect on what it means to have access to God's wisdom, strength, care, and a calming presence in our life as a family. And how has Jesus provided plenty and victory for us as a family when we most needed it? Let's pray together. God, we love you. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this Christmas season that reminds us that he came to obliterate the darkness of this world. He came to defeat the works of the devil. And God, if we're saved, help us to realize that that victory is meant for us personally. That by repenting of our sins, coming to faith in you, coming out of the darkness and into the light, that we can experience that joy of forgiveness. No matter how dark, no matter how gloomy, no no matter how distressful it's been for us, your light shines in miraculous ways, just like it did when when the Midianites were defeated with 300 Israelites. You are capable of great victories. God, we're thankful that we don't have to sell our souls to the things of this world for protection, that you are a much better father than that, that you're a father who cares for us immensely and provides great care for us when we need it. We thank you for the wisdom, the counsel, and the strength that comes to do the things that you've called us to do. God, I pray that we would enjoy that peace that we're meant to. Not peace because of an absence of trouble in our life, but peace in the midst of trouble. Help us to see what it means to be more than a conqueror, that that we can still experience famine at times. We can still experience a a lack of, of earthly needs at times. But none of those circumstances can ever separate us from your love. We thank you and praise you for that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.